Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode four of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Since the last episode was recorded, I've taken the time to post the show on all the major podcast apps, and I'll continue to try to make it available on as many platforms as possible to ensure that anyone interested in this content can access it. I'd really like to thank all of you who have taken the time to listen to the podcast. It's very encouraging to see the download numbers every day, and it lets me know that there is definitely interest in the topic of psychedelics from a traditional Christian angle. If you have enjoyed the show, I would be eternally grateful if you would subscribe, review, and share the podcast. A five-star review would be very much appreciated and will help us reach new listeners. And if you would like to contact me with feedback on the podcast or to share your own opinion or experience on the topic of faith and psychedelics, please feel free to connect with me through email. That address is contact at thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com. If you're concerned about spelling that correctly, you can find it under the contact link on the website. And please put the term podcast in the subject line to help ensure that it doesn't get lost in the spam file. Although I have a busy work and family life and may not have the opportunity to adequately respond to every email I receive, I assure you that I read them all and am very happy to hear from listeners. In this episode, our guest references a passage from the Old Testament, Psalm 91. I'd like to read that passage now, and you can imagine, given the context of our guest's story, how such a passage could bring comfort and courage to a soldier on the battlefield. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. 
Psalm 91. And with that, let's welcome today's guest. Today, our guest is Seth Connor. Seth is a former United States Marine, CEO and founder of Biotech Wellness, Chief Marketing Strategist at Social Brand Syndicate, and is a psychedelic integration coach at Executive Intigen, found at sethconnor.com. Seth is a coach who has a unique approach to assist high performers excel in life, relationships, and business. Seth Connor, welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Clint. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Well, it's, it's good to finally get to see you face to face, at least over Zoom. I've been you know, trying to learn a little more about you, and I'm happy to introduce you to my audience today. So maybe you could just briefly describe your early life and your religious experience, maybe growing up, and how that eventually led you into the military and, and now an entrepreneur. Um, who's helping others. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, you know, again, thank you for having me on here. I'm, I really appreciate what you're doing with this podcast. I think it's very important for those, especially in the church and, you know, growing up in the church to kind of begin to break down their, their God box or their faith box or their religion box. And as, as I did, because it, brought so much wealth of wisdom, insight, understanding uh, to my world. And so I just really appreciate what you're doing with this podcast. I know it's already created meetings, fortuitous and divine meetings with other people. And when I hear those stories, I really, I get excited. So I, uh, I grew up in the Baptist church in Colorado. I didn't really know any better. It's just, it was, it was church. And I found that I was kind of rebellious in nature. So I was always getting in trouble at church because church was like family, you know, it was just like another home away from home. And I always found myself being involved in like the youth group and being a leader I was always in the, you know, the productions at church and, um, and starting the, the youth band at church at that time. And going on missions trips and all that jazz that, that comes with growing up in the church. And little did I know is that that rebellious nature didn't look good at the time, caused my parents heartache and headache, as well as the youth leaders. You know, why are you asking all of these questions and, and, you know, things like that. And it was just my curious nature, you know, and instead of people calling that out and saying, wow, you're very inquisitive. Great question. I don't have the answer for that. It's usually like, you know, be quiet and, uh, you know, find your place. And that just didn't last very long. Once I got into high school, I was getting in trouble outside of the church. I went away from the church for a while because I felt hurt by people, leadership in the church. Eventually 9-11 happened. And uh, actually 9-11 happened just a few months, I guess a few months after the um, I graduated from high school. And while everybody else was getting ready to go to college, and, you know, pursue their dreams. I was like, the last thing I want to do is go back to school. And I had a few friends that were going into the military. And I said, the last thing that I want to do is go into the military. <laughs> I wanted to go travel. I had some, I made some connections through missions trips, actually, um, around the world that I was like, I'm just going to go and kind of live as a gypsy and 
travel around and see where, see where life takes me. But 9-11 happened, and out of an emotional response, I enlisted in the Marine Corps and was in boot camp um, probably within a month after 9-11 happened. So it was very quick. And <clears throat> I don't regret it. I think that it was, it was just part of my journey. But um, I got in and found that I was good at being a Marine. Didn't want to stay there, though. And it was in the Marine Corps that I found a different relationship with God that was apart. It was a faith that was apart from my parents' faith. It was a, you know, a new religion, a new spirituality apart from them. Still looked very similar, just had more of the you know, conversational uh, attributes that I think I was hungry for growing up. And so um, I eventually found a community. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Saddleback Church out in Southern California, the mega church in Southern California, Saddleback. They did the Purpose Driven Life books and you know Rick Warren and that. And I just happened to find myself there. I didn't know who, who they were. Yeah, uh, I've heard I of them. I might have even read that book uh, many years ago. Yeah, very popular at that time. What was that like early 2000s? Very popular book. Um, of course, there's been a lot of, you know, parodies that sprung off of that. Uh, but I think at that time it was very relevant. And so just to, to kind of speed it up a little bit, I eventually found myself because of this hunger for something more mystical. I was just the, the Baptist religion that I grew up in was very dry and it didn't have the answers that I needed. And I eventually found my way into more of the charismatic church. And, uh, so like vineyard, uh, where a lot of the music, you know, that the non-denominational worship music comes out of the vineyard church. Um, that's where I somehow found myself as the original vineyard in Anaheim Hills, California, found the more charismatic route. And then I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, like Jesus culture or Bethel church up in Northern California. <clears throat> I eventually found myself up in Northern California being at that church. And I was just on a journey. I was hungry for a spirituality. I was hunger for hungry to see God move. I was hungry to just see something that was bigger than myself. And, um, that's, that brought me up to Northern California where I met and married my now ex-wife, but had a couple uh, beautiful children with her. And, uh, now I'm in North Carolina and, uh, find myself in business as an entrepreneur with a marketing agency and working with plant medicine and, with in kind of consulting other companies that are working with plant medicine and also doing this, uh, this coaching, helping people get into these experiences because it is rather, you know, it's kind of a ambiguous thing. It's people are just unsure of it. You know, it has a stigma to it. It has a culture that has followed us out of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and that's changing there's a psychedelic renaissance that's happening right now for the sake of mental health. And people are hungry for that. And the resources are just not there. They're, they're beginning to be there, but they haven't been there into how to prepare for these, you know, adequately to prepare for these uh, ceremonies or these experiences. And then once you have them, you have all of this information, all of these, re this revelation, these messages that have come from, somewhere, maybe deep within us, maybe from the divine. And now how do we apply that to our life? You know, how do we integrate that into my reality? Now the, the one, the 3d reality that I see and walk that out and implement that into my day-to-day -day life. And so 
I think that hopefully that answers your question <laughs> in regards to that, the chronological order there. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you don't mind, I'll go back and dig into some of that chronological yep. story there. So can you tell us a little bit more about your military experience, where you were, where you were stationed? Maybe were, was there a religious or faith, you know, church or chaplaincy, something you had access to there that possibly reignited your faith or led you down that charismatic road or, or were yeah. there situations that like some of us experience, just, you know, bring us to our knees before the throne of God, seeking answers or comfort Anything like that you can share with us about your travels, about maybe some of your experience in the military and what insight or negative impact that made? Um, did you experience any physical consequences like CTE or PTSD from impacts or dangerous experiences? Yeah, yeah. I can, I can feel you being uh, sensitive to the, the subject. I, just, I appreciate that. And um, I have been... One of the, I guess, one of the luckier ones that is able to speak openly about their experiences, about the hard stuff, um, because trauma is a hard thing to to talk about because it lives in our bodies on a molecular level. They've been able to prove that through science, and so when you start talking about it, you that's there's a reason why people relive that trauma is because it's residing in their body. It's not even just in their brain as a memory. It actually lives as a chemical makeup in our molecules of our body. And that's another reason why people move in the direction of plant medicine, because there is healing for that. But to answer your question, um, the military was very profound for me. I had no desire to, like, I always had this because I grew up in the church. I always had this almost obligatory sense of staying in some sort of contact with God or Jesus or Holy spirit. In fact, I didn't really have much of a relationship with the Holy spirit until years later, just because no one ever explained that that was not necessarily a Baptist church type of thing, right? That was more Pentecostal. So Jesus and God were kind of the, 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 uh, the archetypes or the, the individuals, the, the, um, the Godhead, the part of the Godhead that I could connect with. And even a little bit harder was the, the father side, because I did not have a great relationship with my dad growing up. And obviously that relates, but when I was in the military, I always felt like I was under the, um, the, the thumb of this God that I grew up with. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm rebelling against the church. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I want to go, you know, uh, sow my wild oats, sow my wild oats and, and just have a, a good time. And so I didn't, there was moments where I could always come back to center and get into some position of prayer or reading, reading the Bible um, that would help or working, you know, in the purpose driven life book. Cause I think I had that at the time. So it was always felt like I could come back to center, but it usually came after like doing something that I felt very guilty about, you know, like maybe drinking too much or, you know, um, having a, a one night stand or something like that. And so that was a very hard thing to work through in my relationship uh, with the, the divine at that time. Now I did go over to Iraq was there for OIF two. Um, that was the, I think the spring of 2004 is when we were there and we were in Fallujah, Iraq. And so that was at that time was a very hot spot. Um, that's where we were there when 
you know, I don't know how many people remember, but there was a, it was a big deal because there was four Westerners or four, um, you know, uh, secret secure security, um, individuals that were essentially mutilated in the streets of Fallujah. And we were expected to kind of like take the, these, these terrorist unit down that was residing in Fallujah. And it just got very, very messy. Luckily, <clears throat> myself and my platoon sustained little to no uh, injuries. We didn't have any casualties. However, our company did sustain uh, five or six casualties in the duration that we were there, which was about seven or eight months. So it was, it was a very hot area to be in. There was one time. So, so I, everyone's probably familiar with, um, Psalms 91. Someone gave me that, um, that whole chapter printed out. Uh, it was actually a, a, a mom's friend that gave it to me. And I, I was like, I'll read it maybe someday, but I put it in my, my breast pocket. And I kept it with me the whole time I was there. Right. Even if I changed outfits, I would put that in the, the breast pocket. And there was one day where we got ambushed. We had mortars coming in and there was, and they're not very accurate. They're just scary, but this one happened to be really accurate. Went right down the middle of a Humvee as men were jumping into it to go react to either a quick react force as they were about to drive out and go try to find the origin of this, uh, where these, uh, mortars were coming from. As soon as they jumped in there, one just happened to go right down the middle. It was just like, it was a fluke, I'm sure. But what it communicated to me was the next one is going to land on me. And so that was, a, that, was, that was trauma. That was traumatizing experience, seeing men die, um, seeing the gruesomeness of it, and agreeing with whatever it was that that was communicating to me at the time, which was fear, and I'm going to die, and, and those kinds of uh, thoughts or ideas. Fast forward a few years later, after getting out of the Marine Corps, I had an experience with um, in, in a church where I was almost in a, in a vision or a, or a trance. And Jesus showed me that brought me back to that experience and showed me where he was standing right behind me with wings unfurled. And it was like it was like he was covering me with his wings and protecting me that even if there was a mortar that was going to land on me, it wasn't going to, he was, it wasn't going to happen because he was there protecting me. Um, and I heard, you know, go refer to Psalms 91. And when I went back there and read it, it was essentially the scene that he was showing me was happening that I just couldn't see at the time you know, of just this protection and I'm covering you with my wings. And, you know, though thousand arrows, you know, might strike at you, not one, um, you know, you, you know, the, the passage, but it was very healing for me to have that experience. And that was kind of like my first real encounter with something supernatural uh, to that degree. Cause I was just getting into the supernatural, I was just getting into these experiences um, with the divine and with Holy spirit and with angels and, and things like that. But I didn't necessarily have that while I was in the Marine Corps or while I was at war, I, the only thing that started happening was that I was having more of a conversational prayer. Like I was developing a relationship with God at that time, um, that I never had before that was personal, you know, and I could be honest and I could just have the conversation and that was different. I did not grow up with that. Um, so other than that, there was not 
the, the experiences with God did not really start happening until after I got out. And it wasn't until after, or just before I got out that I found a church community while I was still in that were, was talking about dream interpretation and, um, and actual healing and, you know, prayer for healing and prayer of, uh, you know, and prophecy and, and things like that. And that's what blew my mind, but it, it was feeding something in me that had this hunger and this desire for something mystical, something beyond just this boring, bland, you know, I'm going to read this book and, and not be able to connect with anything. You know, I, 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 all the time in my conversations with people, I'm like, that book is just a book unless the Holy Spirit is breathing on it. You know, he says that he is the word. Okay. This book is not, is not the word. He is the word. And when the Holy Spirit breathes on this book, then it becomes alive, you know, and that kind of stuff started to feed my soul, feed my spirit. Um, and that's when I just kind of set off on this journey of more and more and more. Yeah, I was raised Baptist as well. I think each denomination or, you know, aspect of the Christian faith has its own strengths and weaknesses. You know, as human beings, we bring that to the table. I think we naturally gravitate towards others who kind of share our um, our perspectives and our our way of looking at the world, our worldview. So when we collect together in these different and sometimes divergent groups of denominations, we all bring our own streaks and weaknesses to those things. And I think that's why it's it's easy to to take each denomination and kind of ascribe qualities to it. You know, you, you said your experience was kind of dry and, and bland, and I can sympathize with that growing up in, in a similar tradition. But, you know, that speaks to some people. Um, I yeah. saw people in my experience in that church that were obviously passionate and extremely moved by the Spirit. But like yourself, I kind of felt like I wasn't being fed or there, there was just a, a, an inability for me to connect with the Spirit in that setting. And you're bringing up a really, really good point right now. <clears throat> and that's, and that's the fact that it's, it's, it can't be a cookie cutter thing. You know, we, we have these different religions that were created, um, based off of different, you know, either, uh, dogma or doctrine, um, even traditions, but to be able to say that everybody should fit into one or, or should fit into this other is irresponsible. And I think that for me, I was looking around and I was, and I was seeing people having experiences and I'm like, why am I not? Is there something wrong with me? Am I defective? Am I not in the favor of God? Does he despise me? Is he punishing me? Is he disciplining me? Like all that chatter starts coming in. Right. And it's not helpful. And so for me, after I just got to a point where I was done striving, doing it a certain way. I was like trying so hard to get Jesus to come alive in my life in, in a certain kind of relationship where it was like, it made, it was personable, but it, it just wasn't happening. And I'm like, either something's wrong with me or something's wrong with this way of doing it. And even, even in the very supernatural uh, charismatic church, I was still seeing people having these crazy encounters from what I could tell. And I'm not, and I'm just waiting and doing whatever I can to, to occasion those experiences. And, you know, I would begin to, you know, uh, you know, feel a little something, but it, then it would go away. Or, you know, I get my prayer language, um, which is great, but it didn't like really 
produce a whole lot, but just encourage me a little bit. So eventually you get to a point where you're like, okay, well, maybe this doesn't fit me either. So what else is out there? You know? And so I just, I say that just to encourage anybody that's like, I don't feel like I encounter God here. doesn't mean you have to stay there. You know, we can, we can, it's almost like bio-individuality when you start talking about how everybody, you know, this person could eat this type of food and be super healthy, but this person can't, you know, this person could eat that same food and not be healthy. You know, everybody's got a different body, a different bio-individuality. I think people have a different, you know, uh, spiritual individuality too. Yeah. It breaks my heart to see people in a, in a tradition and they won't entertain other things out of guilt, you know, because they feel like it's their fault. They're not feeling God's presence. They feel like it's their fault because of their sin, or maybe they're just, you know, not spiritual enough. And I think often maybe if they would, if they would explore maybe another tradition and uh, that doesn't mean you're abandoning, you know, your faith or your friends, you know, it means you're trying to feed your own soul. My Christian walk has evolved or expanded over the years. You know, I find myself in a different tradition than I grew up with, and I feel more whole and fed there than I ever have, you know? So when I see someone move from one tradition to another, I I encourage them. I'm excited because if you were dying of thirst, you would run after the water, the living water. And if someone is wilting on the vine, encourage them to, to go somewhere, you know, find, find a place where that, where you can feel the work of the spirit and you can actually become a vessel of faith and good works in the world. You know, if you're just sitting in your pew feeling guilty, you're not serving anyone well, especially yourself, your, your spouse, your children, you're, you're dying on the vine. And so, yeah, I'm trying to remember who it was. Uh, John, I used to be such a, a academic scholar in the world of, of uh, Christianity years ago. So I'm trying to remember his name, John something, uh, but he pretty much said, and he might've been quoting somebody else too, but he was saying that God is, is fully, oh man, I'm going to butcher it. But essentially it was like, God is fully satisfied in us when we are fully delighted in him. And if you're sitting there and you're just not delighted in the divine in God, then it's okay to move on. Did, did anybody ever make you feel guilty maybe by moving away from what you've known or what, you know, the community maybe that you had at a particular church? Did, did you ever feel guilty from others or did you just feel guilty? Did you feel guilty in, intrinsically? Me, myself? Yeah. Uh, in one, in, in one setting, definitely. I was, uh, I was in this church for about 16 years a very tight knit community, um, very uh, theologically focused. I learned so much there. All my children were were born and baptized in that community. And I also served as a deacon in that church for years. At some point, it was no longer meeting our needs. And when we left there, I felt like I was abandoning a sacred responsibility. It was so difficult. I felt like I was letting people down, but I knew I could not serve God or those people if I was not meeting my family's needs first. And so in order for us to get on a healthy spiritual plane where we could be a source of goodness in the world as a family, I had to find another community that, that would possibly meet our needs and where we could, we could meet their needs as well. 
And uh, that, yeah, that was particularly yeah. difficult. I, and now I did not receive guilt from those that I left in that community. I could tell that many were, were hurt, but I think many of them also sympathized. Um, and so it was, it was probably my own spirit that was grieving or feeling guilt or felt like I was letting people down. And uh, that's amazing. I, I just want to give kudos to that, that community who essentially supported you and said, and, and we're not offended by it and we're not um, needing to somehow control you or manipulate you into staying like that's that's an amazing community if if they can just freely let you go and and you know pilgrimage or discover or explore so yeah my hat's off to them it might not have been quite that easy for them. <laughs> they, they there were you know there were there were questions like when are you coming back and things like that sure um, but it wasn't, it wasn't in any way a guilt trip. You know, it was more like, on the contrary, it was just them telling me that their arms were completely open. Yeah. And that, that, really, that really gave me a lot of comfort. And it actually enabled us to preserve our friendship in spite of differing maybe theological views or cultural context, and we may find ourselves in the future. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, man. well, when you when you when you return to the United States and you you're digging into your faith and you find these other communities where you feel like maybe that's the direction where you you might find spiritual growth. Did you ever find what you were looking for? Did you in in the context of those churches? Did you have baggage from your experiences that you were sorting through? Like you you just told us about that that vision you had where you saw that Jesus was protecting you in those dangerous situations. Did that give you the peace that you were looking for? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think um, when I when I first landed at Saddleback Church, I integrated with a, a college community there, large college community, and discovered and and so these are baby steps, right? I mean, it's so funny. It's how it's how beautiful you know God likes to work with us. I found these baby steps of like okay, I'm in this community and I can have fun with people without drinking. Okay. That was like the step number one of laying a foundation out of the military, right? It was like, I can have fun with people and not have to drink. What that did was that it forced me into uncomfortable situations because I was so insecure as a person. I was so insecure going into the military, you know, out of my childhood that, and, and you, we would just drink that away, you know, get the liquid courage and, and ignore insecurity. So now I'm in a place where I've got people who love me and I can be insecure with them. And that began a healing process. Right. And so, and that is what has continued to this day. So then I, you know, pursuing, you know, that, and then it, it kind of brings me into the more charismatic side of things because I had started dating this girl who was going to that church, more of a charismatic church. And she was amazing. Like she was this, and we kind of had an off on again, off again relationship due to my own issues still that I brought to the table, but it's just because I didn't know how to be in a relationship that was healthy. And, but it forced us into like couples counseling, beginning to like go to therapy, start talking about the things that trouble me and why my behaviors are the way that they are. Right. And, and, you know, just to, to give you the spoiler, it's just that, you know, we have addictions, we have 
um, we have trauma that creates addictions. We avoid that trauma, that uncomfortable emotional feelings. And we do that by creating addictions to certain things that allow us to feel good for a moment, right? Uh, but then we've also got trauma that leads to depression and anxiety. Um, and typically depression and anxiety comes from us um, not wanting to deal with the pain, right? There's a pain there that is so uncomfortable and we just prefer to ignore it. But when you ignore pain in your heart and in your body, then it begins to manifest into depression and anxiety. Okay. And so trauma is really at the core of things. And if we can go after that trauma and heal that, then we see healing in our bodies, healing in our heart, healing in our minds, our emotions. Um, and that's again, why I do the work that I do is because of the trauma stuff. And, and that leads obviously into PTSD, which I had a small amount of, I had dreams, uh, after, after war, uh, that they, you know, constitute as having PTSD and then definitely just my behaviors and, and dealing with depression, anxiety, there were things there that they would classify as PTSD. Uh, but again, it was mild compared to a lot of the friends that I had that were just like full-blown alcoholics. And that was how they were dealing with the trauma. And so I was so thankful for this relationship because it forced me into a place like a 10 year season of self-development, uh, you know, meeting with counselors, meeting with therapists, always trying to get to the center of why, what is the pain or what is the issue that causes me to feel or, you know, think or behave certain ways. It wasn't until years later that I continued to do this work, but inside my marriage, um, because once you get married, as everybody knows, like you've got this mirror that's held up in front of you and you just can't get away from it, you know? Um, and so for better, that worse. marriage, of, yeah, exactly. For better or for worse, that's absolutely true. And so it forced me to continue this hard work even more so. Um, and it, it, that marriage ended in, in a divorce. But the funny thing is, is that it ended because I finally, one, discovered who I was. I, I discovered uh, my identity, what I, who I, what I like about myself, uh, what I like to do. And what this did is it pulled us out of a codependent relationship that um, disrupted the status quo. And that initiated um, some action on her part to say, I just can't do this anymore. And so um, <clears throat> all of that, just to kind of say that each level or each church that I went to or each community that I integrated into or each um, different way of doing spirituality that I got into was always just a stepping stone to the next thing. Like I would get somewhere, I'd experience something and go, oh my gosh, this is it. Like I've, I've found the Holy grail of spirituality, you know? And then you realize that was just the next, you know, that was just the next step. That was just, you know, you're getting, you're going higher and higher from glory to glory, you know? And one layer um, of the onion just one layer of the onion. Exactly. Right. So every time I thought I had arrived at something and this is the magic bullet, this is the key, this is the answer. I would be there for a little while, you know, and then I would realize, okay, this is not where I'm meant to stay. Like I'm meant to keep pursuing and exploring. And maybe that's just my curious nature or the investigator type of person that God has made me to be, you know, I love, I just love scripture that says, you know, it is the duty of Kings to search out the mysteries, you know, that's obviously a terrible paraphrase, but it is our duty to search out the mysteries of the kingdom, you know? And so, um, that's kind of been what my journey has been about for the last, what well, seems like 30 years at this point. So where did, 
where did plant medicine or psychedelics become something present on your radar and what compelled you to further investigate it once you learned about it and what preconceived notions did you have before that? Great. <laughs> That's a great question. So um, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but I grew up in a law enforcement household. My, my dad was very black and white. You know, it was always the, you will do this because I say so kind of thing. And, and there was never any explanation why. So there's never that much of that, those teaching moments. It was just the hammer, you know, of, of discipline. And um, so that doesn't teach you very much, you know, but my mom was a little, she was also law enforcement, but she was much more um, uh, fluid. She, she wasn't so black and white. So um, I see all that because I grew up with this programming, you know, going through the D.A.R.E. program uh, in, in elementary school. I was like, you know, I got all the gold medals for um, the best poster or something like that. And so now that didn't keep me from like drinking alcohol in high school and, and experimenting with, with cannabis or something like that. But I was always kind of afraid of it. Just kind of, you know, experimented, but didn't go full blown. Like some of my friends did years later, uh, one of my friends from high school and we went to the military together. Um, we actually lost touch, uh, a, a year or two out of the military. And the reason it was my fault. And the reason was because I had, begun to start turning into a, um, religious a-hole for lack of better words. You know, I got very puffed up. Yeah. <laughs> I got very puffed up on my, on my knowledge of, of, uh, uh you know, religious dogma and, and the Bible. And yeah, I might've used the Bible as a, as a baseball bat a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we were, we were thumpers, we were Bible thumpers and, um, you know, I was always trying to evangelize him and he just, you know, he wasn't having it. Even in high school, I tried it a little bit and then outside of the military. And so it just kind of felt like it was my fault. I couldn't accept him. I couldn't have a relationship with him because I didn't know how to relate to him because my head, my identity, my whole identity was wrapped up in this religiosity. So it was my fault that we kind of had a falling out, not a falling out, but just went different ways. And then probably 10 years after that, we reconnected. And started having conversations again. And I started to kind of lean into that same thing where, you know, I was right. And I think it was talking about evolution or something. And he gave me a very stern, but loving smackdown. Like, a, you know, he, the, the, what is it? The, the uh, slaps from a friend or that, you know, it stings, but it's the best. Right. And it, totally opened up my world going, I don't know that the one, the thing that I came to know, cause I knew, I thought I knew all this stuff. I thought I knew all this truth because that's the way I was programmed. And it's just true. What I came to realize is the one truth that I know absolute certain is that I don't know anything. And when I accepted that as kind of my, my mantra, it, be, it caused me to be a very humble person and him, my relationship with him just got a hundred times better than it ever had before. But to answer your question, he began to share certain stories with me about his experience with plant medicine. And I was so, at first I was like, oh my gosh, you know, that's, that's a little outside the, the box there, man. I don't know if, how, what I think about that, but the great thing about him is that he indirectly causes you to want to research and learn and discover and, and see what's out there and, and figure out what you can accept and what you can't accept and begin to formulate different narratives, 
you know, that and reprogram and things like that. And so it allowed me to begin researching. And in doing so, I think the first thing I came across was um, just information on microdosing and how it's been helping veterans with their PTSD. And that's kind of where it started. And my first experience with any sort of psychedelic was ayahuasca. So I went straight to um, working with ayahuasca and I just, it was just because this random encounter with somebody provided an opportunity to work with that medicine uh, locally. I didn't have to go to Peru or Brazil or Costa Rica. I was just able to do it locally. And so I took advantage of that and it was, it just kind of opened up my, my world. Um, the, the interesting thing is that it, there's always, there's always the fear like that. I was, as I was going down this journey, that I'd be backsliding, you know, the whole, and I like using Christianese. So like backsliding or being deceived, you know, and in this journey, I've, I made a kind of a commitment to Jesus. I said, he said, run ahead, explore, bump around, you know, uh, research, be curious. Um, but always look back and just, you know, just, just check in with me and what that allowed me to do, which was scary. Cause I was thinking, Oh, I'm backsliding. People are going to think I'm being deceived, but every time I just kind of go a little bit further, I just look back and, and I always got the green light from him, you know? And I was like, well, if that's the case then I'm going to continue to do what he's told me to do for, for a while now, which is to be more confident in his ability to keep me than the devil's ability to deceive me. Right. If you're a conscientious yeah. Christian, you're always questioning your own motives. You know, you're like, am I just justifying this to make myself feel better? So I won't feel guilty when I do this thing, you know? And I don't, I mean, again, if you're a thoughtful dedicated Christian, you can't escape that because you're going to, you know, that it's easy to deceive yourself if you want to. And, and so I think there's always going to be that, that struggle with whether a journey like this is appropriate. That's our walk with God. You know, it's like God wrestling with Jacob in the desert. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, if we take him at his word reading through scripture, I just, I, the things that begin to shine more brightly than they have in the past are things like Jesus saying, Hey, you're going to be able to do, uh, you know, what I do here on earth and a lot more, you know, that just kind of like opens up this whole new paradigm of like, what does he mean by that? You know, um, or that we're co-creators, uh, that we're co-heirs. Like, what is, what does that imply? What are you implying Jesus? Like, what is, what are you saying here? Cause that, that again is opening up this place of like, I am not just supposed to be a sheep but I am a co-creator that elevates me to a certain place in relationship where I can be trusted. And once I'm beginning to start trusting myself the way that he trusts me, then I don't have to be afraid anymore of, am I being deceived? Am I, you know, am I going the wrong direction? I have a relationship with him that I can check in with him. And if he's like, no, red light, like he's pretty much saying, I want you to live your life on green lights, which is kind of, I don't know if you've ever read Matthew McConaughey's new book called green lights. He always makes me think of it. It's like living a life on green lights. And then if you get the red light from like, okay, cool, slow down. And, uh, and I haven't I've read it yet, but it's in, my, it's, it's in my queue. I haven't read it yet. So yeah, he's, he's, I just love him as a, as a person and as a, as a, you know, an actor, but um, so yeah, I just kind of began living my life on green lights and it was, it got, got hard. It got scary at times. Cause I was like, I don't know if this is okay. I don't know if I'm going, if I'm just like losing it. Um, like if 
because I stepped away. I just stepped away from everything and really whittled everything down my, my faith into just some very truthful things, which was just like, I want to get rid of everything and just hang on to the Godhead. I'm just going to anchor myself there and in the divine and everything else. I'm just going to kind of like scrap and start over. Um, and in that process is when I've eventually found plant medicine as well, which just opened up the thing that I was really hungry for, which was this mystical spiritual experience. Like if we can get away from the stigma of, Hey, people are doing this just to get high. Well, the truth is no, when you work with that kind of medicine, you can't avoid your problems. Like people get high to avoid their issues and to, to escape the pain. No, you come face to face with your pain. You come face to face with your issues. And the purpose of working with it is to have solutions or to, to look at them objectively and be able to um, get beyond the trauma, to get beyond the problems, the issues, the pain, uh, to deal with the pain. You know, it's like, it's like a, a fast track to dealing with pain, whereas some people, they sit and talk therapy for years and years and years, trying to get to the source of the pain. And the problem is they can't do that because there's a gatekeeper at the subconscious that says, nope, not letting you in this, this safe it's locked. You can't get into it. And so people spend decades in talk therapy, trying to get to inside their subconscious, trying to get into this safe that we have a gatekeeper keeping very well guarded. But when you start working with this medicine, it allows you to get, it's almost like it puts the gatekeeper to sleep. You're able to get in and you're able to see the source of the pain work through it. And what comes out of that is just this life giving Liberty. Like you find the truth and the truth allows you to go free. You're liberated from that trauma, from that pain. Um, because all of our behaviors come out of that pain. We do certain things because we're wired that way because we did it. We've done them so many times that the brain neurologically has said, Hey, this is the way we do things. Whenever we experience this sort of stimuli, stress, pain, and we're going to keep doing that until we can figure out how to deal with the trauma and then start wiring our brain differently. So anyway, you got me on a pedestal, man. Sorry. All right. Prior to finding <laughs> soapbox. Yeah. Prior to finding ayahuasca, did you find any healing with, with cannabis? Was that, or, and is that something you personally found beneficial or something that, you know, others who might find that beneficial or. Can you speak yeah, to personally, that briefly? Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm glad you brought that up too, because I've never worked really well with cannabis and that's just me. And I, again, bring it back to just a bio individual thing. Some people seem to work really well with it. I just haven't. And I, I feel like in my observations, people, I think cannabis, the main function of it is really as more of a like pain reliever right? Like a, like a physical pain reliever. Um, I don't know how well it does on the, the mental or emotional side of things. Cause I haven't just from observations, I'm like, it doesn't seem like you're getting to the root of certain things, but I, I see a lot of veterans who use cannabis to, um, to cope with their, their trauma or their pain, their emotional pain. But I'm also watching them going, it doesn't seem like you're getting any better either. And so I've begun, and this is, again, this is my position on it. And I could be completely wrong, but I feel like cannabis is just better for pain relief. Uh, and it has, it has its function. 
I think it's great. And I love the plant and I think it's amazing. I just don't work well with it. I have worked really well with psilocybin mushrooms. I've worked really well with ayahuasca. Um, I have not had a chance to work with mescaline or, you know, peyote, San Pedro, Wachuma, which is all kind of the same thing, um, or in the same family or even like DMT, but they, I believe are there as a function. They all have their own different functions, but as a function of, um, more of the healing on the trauma side, the emotional side, as well as I feel like they help assist in teaching us spiritual things as well. And again, you know, that kind of gets into more of a different category, but that's my take on cannabis. I have nothing against it. I just think the function has been looked at the function of it has been looked at it, looked at the, a different way, or it should be looked at it in a different way. Yeah. I tend to agree with you. I think it's very, well, I think any medicine is be it a pharmaceutical or something natural. I think it's very unique to the individual. And I think that cannabis probably is a good, I don't want to say this disparagingly. I think it is a good band aid. So like, or maybe you should refer to it like aspirin. So if, if you have a set of symptoms, it may be exactly the treatment that is need to relieve those symptoms, but those symptoms are symptoms of something else, something deeper usually. So, and I don't believe it's wrong to treat symptoms. I mean, if you, you know, if you have a cut on your finger, you know, put some Neosporin on that sucker and wrap it up, you know, but if, um, but I don't know if your whole arm is infected, that Neosporin and a Band-Aid are going to be get able to get down to that, that deeper healing level. Absolutely. So can yep. you tell us a little bit about this first ayahuasca experience? You know, having not experienced that, what brought you to the final conclusion that this may be an effective means of moving forward? And how did that experience affect you? Yeah. You know, I think I was at a, I was at a very desperate place in life at that point in time. So a little quick context is, um, at that point, my ex-wife and I were in the middle of a in-house separation. Um, we had been, well, I guess we didn't separated. Um, I was living in the guest room for probably about eight months at that point. Um, about six months previous to the ayahuasca ceremony, I had been, uh, laid off from my job and, started a new business, started the marketing agency. <clears throat> and so it was just a lot of stressors and I wasn't hopeful about my, the marriage reconciling. I had tried for six months during the first part of our in-house separation to bring solutions to the table. And, and she just was highly resistant. She, she wasn't bringing in any solutions to the table. And so after about six months, I just kind of was so tired. I just needed to kind of take a step back. Of course, at that point, she's wanting to re-engage, you know, and um, like, oh, let's, let's work on the solutions. And I just said, I need, I need some time. Um, I need to kind of just figure out who I am, re-engage with who I am. And part of that was uh, ayahuasca just kind of fell in my lap. And I said, okay, I need to do this. I feel like I need to do this. I need answers that are beyond myself that I've been unable to find. Um, or maybe answers that are deep within me that I've been unable to find, you know? And so I committed to doing this two-night ceremony. Typically the way it works is like we start around, you know, 6 PM and, and it goes until like maybe three o'clock in the morning. Uh, most ceremonies are done in the nighttime like that. And it was, um, 
it was something out of this. I mean, it, like when you say it was out of this world, it was really out of this world. It took me, I knew, I knew what to expect just from the research that I had done previously, but you don't know until you experience it. And so it was very life-changing for me. My heart was very open for like at least a week or two. Um, I was so excited about re-engaging with my wife at that time. Um, but I also saw some things where I'm like, uh, because of who I am and, and, and what I value about myself and what I value my kids, you know, what I emulate to my kids in relationship, some things have to change between her and I. And I brought those to the table and they were received well in the moment. But I think what it initiated was this exit plan on her part, because she realized that the codependent, like subconsciously probably realized the codependent relationship was no more. And that I wasn't going to allow for that to keep happening. And she was probably a little scared that she is almost like she, she used the words, I don't know who you are anymore. You know? And the funny thing was, is that until that point, I didn't know who I was for seven years, you know, in our marriage, I didn't know who I was. I was always trying to conform to what I thought she wanted me to be. And now I'm at a place where I know who I am and I've got, I'm the best version of myself that I've ever been. And I'm empowered and I feel strong and I can take this family and this relationship to the next level. Um, for her, it was, I don't know who you are anymore. And so though it's sad that the, the relationship had to end, it's ultimately the, it's ultimately what was supposed to happen. I mean, she had a choice. She could have chose to engage with this, but I can't force her into doing that, you know, and I don't fault her for taking the decision that, you know, the route that she made, that was her choice with the information that she had at that time, she made a decision and I can't fault her for that. But ultimately this is, I guess, the way that it was supposed to go. And so coming out of that, that was my first of, I think, six five or six ceremonies at this point over the last few years. Uh, and then I also work with, you know, uh, occasionally work with high levels of uh, mushrooms to kind of um, imitate that same experience through ayahuasca. But I, own, I do my own personal ceremonies as opposed to in a collective, like a community of, you know, at that time, that first one I did was six people. Like the ones that I do typically could get up to like 10 to 15 people. Um, so it's more community-based but I also like to do personal ceremonies as well, just to kind of keep working with the medicine and continue to take myself to the next level. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you, you sharing some, I know that can be challenging. And, and one thing that I would like people to know is I've spoken to many others who've had a similar experience that you've had with difficult relationships. And then they found psychedelics and it didn't necessarily result in, in a separation. You know, I've talked to individuals, I spoke to someone recently and the wife said that her, her husband finally was the man she had been looking for all these years, you know? So I think it, it manifests in different ways for everyone. Absolutely. You know? So I appreciate you sharing that. How did those experiences begin to impact the trajectory of your life? You know, your career, your um, relationship with God your outlook on life, how did it just affect your spiritual walk and, you know, your career and your, and your lifestyle? Yeah. 
I just want, you know, anybody that's listening to this just to know, like, <laughs> you can't put this in a, a psychedelic box. Like we like to put our God in a box. Uh, it's not, it, it's my story is not going to be your story. Right. And I'm glad you made that point earlier. It's like working with plant medicine is not going to result in a divorce or in a separation. Uh, our, our relationship very much could have been this incredible magical relationship that we'd always hoped for. Um, if both parties were on board, you know, uh, going in this direction. And, and so what ended up happening for me was, um, you know, I was already in the middle of kind of a deconstruction of religion, a deconstruction of, uh, of my religion, I should say, deconstruction of my faith. And it, it kind of furthered me into a place where I, you know, there's a term out there. I don't know how many people are aware of it. It's, it's spiritual, but not religious, right? It's a general broad uh, category. It's kind of like what non-denominational was, you know, years ago, spiritual, but not religious. And my understanding of religion for a long time was just like, it is the thing that keeps people from having relationship with each other because they don't agree with each other. And so I really always want to try to get away from that so that I could be in relationship with people that I don't have to agree with. And I actually like it. I like it when my brain is offended and when my dogma is offended, when my, when my religion is offended, that's, I think is what brought me to this place is that years ago, I allowed myself, I allowed people to do that. You know, I didn't hold so tightly onto my religion or my faith. Um, and I didn't have to fight people for it. You know, I didn't, I didn't have to be right all the time. And so now that I get away from the religious part of it, like, I honestly don't find myself. I just, I haven't been in, into a ch church setting in a long time. And uh, well, at least the last few years, uh, last couple of years anyway. And the last time I was in church was mostly just to have my kids there uh, and having a community and having that socialization. Uh, but even then I was beginning to just hear stuff that was being said that I'm just like, ah, oh, that doesn't feel good. That doesn't sound right. And instead of sitting there and being disgruntled all the time, I was like, I just need to remove myself from this setting. And some of the things, some of the practices that I picked up was like meditation, um, you know, meditation and prayer uh, in conjunction. Um, but as for what it has done for me as a person is this, you know, I stopped eating meat was one of them. I became you know, kind of a vegan, kind of the vegan route. And it's just, I just felt called to do it. You know, I call myself a 97% vegan because when you have kids, it's kind of hard to get away from dairy. And so <laughs> I call myself a 97% vegan. And, and when I started, stopped eating meat, my body responded really well. Like I eventually dropped a total of like 30 pounds. Um, I started uh, dry fasting. Uh, I really enjoyed dry fasting uh, or fasting in general. And my body just started getting a lot healthier. Um, I started feeling really light and feeling really well. So I started incorporating these different practices, you know, that were just, they were healing my heart. They were healing my mind. They were elevating me in, um, in consciousness, uh, just all of those things that I probably wouldn't have even thought about if it wasn't for working with plant medicine that I feel like would just kind of direct me in these, these places, you know? And so, um, Though I'm not in church, I definitely try to find community in different places. Um, I'm trying to look at the 
I actually began to be able to look at the Bible through different lenses. And I tell you what, it is, there's so much beauty in the scriptures that I never saw before because I was looking at them all the wrong way. But when you begin to look at them in, in a different way after working with plant medicine, you're just like, oh my gosh, this is a magical, amazing um, story that we're involved in. You know, just the, the stuff in the old Testament, which was so boring before begins to come alive in this whole new way. And it's just exciting. You begin to start connecting with the characters more to where, um, because I mean, I won't get into it too much because it's, it's more speculative, but you know, there's a lot of people out there that believe that these visions came from our all, you know, old Testament characters working with plant medicine. And if you dig into the history the actual like historical history of that time and that period. And in that location, like working with plant medicine was just a normal thing. It wasn't weird. It wasn't strange. It wasn't taboo back then. That was just part of the culture. Um, you know, there's even like ancient holy water, holy oil. That's that, um, if, you know, find traces of acacia tree, which has got a high level of DMT in it, which is the, the spirit molecule that makes you you know, feel, have those psychedelic experiences. It also has traces of cannabis in it. And so, you, you know, this is just normal plants that they work with on, on a normal basis back then. And so when you start thinking about it that way, it becomes really fun, really exciting. Um, I've just, so just to summarize uh, the answer to that question is I feel like the best version of myself ever. I know who I am. Um, I've fallen in love with myself. Whereas before I, I always dealt with self-hatred you know, just because I couldn't be who she wanted me, me to be, or he wanted me to be, or what I felt like God wanted me to be. Uh, so there was always a self-hatred, this guilt, this shame. And anybody that's ever been in the shame cycle knows how much that sucks. And so I was able to break out of the shame cycle and yeah, enjoying um, yourself can actually make you feel guilty and shameful for not feeling shameful when you go back to the, the, the yeah, cycle. Absolutely. It is. It's, it's a crazy cycle. And so I was able to break out of some of those things where I just didn't have to deal with shame anymore. And, um, and I found actually a lot of healing. Like I'll, I'll just be real honest with you for a second here is that <clears throat> since I was, I think 13, 14, 15, I dealt with, uh, uh, addiction to pornography and it followed me for decades. I always thought I'd be able to quit. And this was a, a this was baggage that I did bring into my marriage and, it was more of this, like, you need to get rid of that, that pornography issue. And I tried, I tried so hard, you know, like a lot of men do, especially in the church, like, ah, got to get rid of this. And then it creates so much shame and guilt. And it wasn't until I actually figured out how to step outside of that shame cycle, bam, gone. Like didn't really, you know, didn't deal with, um, the, the driving force of like needing or wanting to, uh, experience or indulge in pornography and being okay with my sexuality and being okay. And sex is good. Sex is a beautiful thing. And, um, you know, it's the, it's the pornography that was, was the issue, but the pornography was a medication for the pain and the trauma and the things that cause shame. So once I was able to be free and liberated from that, those, those things went away. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm always looking at how to be a better person, be a better dad, be a better friend, um, see the world differently, have more compassion for the world. Uh, so it's a never ending journey, but I was able to go 
10, maybe 20 years into the future, accelerated into this healing place because of the use of plant medicine. I appreciate you bringing up uh, and I appreciate your vulnerability and openness, but you said something earlier in the conversation about addiction. And when you brought up the porn, it, it reminded me so often we're treating people's addictions, be it alcohol, drug abuse, pornography. We're trying to address the item. We're not addressing the spirit. And so we say, you'll be better when you don't use this thing. And just removing that thing removes a negative aspect to the life, but it doesn't heal the problem that we were using that item or that substance to cover up or to, to soothe the pain. I, I find that when I speak to people who have used psychedelics medicinally, they feel like it wasn't treating the symptom. It was healing the deeper trauma or the deeper wound. Do you feel like that's accurate in, in not only your own experiences, but obviously you're probably meeting a lot of other people, you know, given your willingness to speak on these things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, like, like we mentioned with the, the therapy, right? We're all, we're trying to get to the root, but it's just a, it's a, um, it's a process. It's just, it's going to meet with so much heartache because it's going to get you so frustrated because you just can't get to that safe. That's locked away in your subconscious, right? You are, tr it's too painful. I don't want to address it. So we medicate with porn, alcohol, TV, food, gambling, shopping, whatever it is, sex, we medicate. And I don't ever judge anybody for that. Like I used to, because I judged myself and I would judge other people for medicating. I, have, I don't judge anybody for the addictions. I get it. It makes sense that we medicate our pain that way. And it's because we also don't believe there's an answer. You, you could remove the, the item and someone could white knuckle it as much as they possibly could. Um, but the only thing that's going to change is uh, the medication. You might be able to change this medication for this medication, but until you deal with that trauma, that root issue, then it's nothing's going to ever change. You know, it's in the only way to be able to deal with that root issue is either go through decades of talk therapy and you might get closer to it, or you remove the gatekeeper and you find healing a lot more, a lot quicker. So hope that answered the question. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone interested in potentially seeking help or growth through the use of psychedelics, what resources would you recommend them begin deciding whether something like that is right for them? Um, because I don't believe that this avenue necessarily is, is the best thing for everyone to do, but how might a person begin entertaining whether something like this would be beneficial for, for, for them? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is not, this is not for everybody. And I'm glad you made that a point because sometimes people are so excited about this modality that they just think everybody has to have it. You know, like, I don't know if anybody ever remembers Timothy Leary back in, uh, you know, the, the fifties and sixties, it was like, we just need to put LSD in every, in the city water and everybody's going to be healed, you know? <laughs> And obviously that's a major boundary violation, um, dosing somebody, but it isn't for everybody. 
And I think that those that that will find themselves heading in this direction, they're already feeling that pull, you know, on their heart. They're feeling like they're, they're, it's almost like they're opening up. It's almost like the medicine is calling to them and they, and that doesn't mean they're going to do it tomorrow or even, you know, next month or, or this year, but it means that something is calling to them to begin the journey of just asking questions just researching it, right? Um, start getting- They probably wouldn't be answered. listening to our conversation. <laughs> exactly. There's some people that are listening that are like, nope, absolutely not. That's definitely not for me. Awesome. And there's some people that are like, oh my gosh, there's something inside of them that's just kind of coming alive. You know, they're like, maybe there's something to this. And so again, like I said, that, that just might lead to going on um, a website and, and getting some questions answered or seeing what people are saying about it you know, uh, seeing some testimonials or, or things like that. So I always just encourage uh, people to you know, get online, do a keyword search for, um, you know, um, working with ayahuasca or what is ayahuasca, you know, just get, begin to get some familiarity with some of the terms or what it is or where it comes from. You know, I mean, this is, these are plants that have been used for thousands upon thousands of years in the, in the, uh, Amazon rainforest of, of, um, you know, down in South America and they use it on, they use it a lot of times on a daily basis. You'll, you'll, you'll probably be curious to find that like, um, pregnant women, uh, take in ayahuasca, uh, kids work with it at a very young age. Now that sounds crazy in the Western societal world. Like you go to jail for something like that, you know, but then that's just normal. That's part of their culture. They've been working with these medicine, this medicine for a very, very long time. So I would just say, begin to start researching it. Um, if you're interested in the science of working with psychedelics, and a lot of people are, and I think it's great because science in itself is a religion. You know, it's one that has a lot of evidence behind it, just based off of, you know, uh, what it, the nature of it is go and look at what John Hopkins is doing, you know, with some of their studies um, and helping people uh, with end of life anxiety or depression, uh, PTSD, addiction, even they, they've got the greatest smoking cessation rate that you'll ever see um, with uh, working with psychedelics. And then there's uh, maps.org, which is the, um, if I remember correctly, the multi-disciplinary disciplinary association for psychedelic studies. For, that's right. Perfect. They, they're also very, uh, Rick Doblin's stuff there is uh, very sciencey too. Um, but they're just, they're on the forefront of trying to be leaders in the, this next generation of mental health, um, professionalism with the use of, you know, um, it's psychedelic assisted therapy is really what it is working with MDMA, um, psilocybin, even LSD. I mean, for those of you that LSD is like a, oh, it's a scary word, you know, it's a hot word, but if you look at the history of it, and it's really interesting to, to look at the history is that Albert Hoffman just came across this chemical randomly trying to search out a heart medication. And, and then now this, and then like, you know, five or 10 years since then, or from that point on, they were working with LSD in, in a psychiatric or, you know, a psychological setting. And so many people were finding healing because it was being used in an appropriate way. It's not until people get a hold of it and use it in an inappropriate way or, uh, you know, an unsafe way that things become perverted or corrupted. And, and thus we develop this stigma behind it. 
But if I can try to break open someone's box today, even just saying, hey, LSD doesn't have to be a bad word. You know, it is something that has helped many, many people back in the mid 1900s. Um, and so when you begin to look at things a little bit differently and open yourself up and just consider things a little bit differently, you'll begin to um, change, you'll begin to change the way you think, which is always important and begin to humble yourself and accept things that maybe, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe what I thought was bad might actually be a good thing over here, you know? And so I just encourage folks to do that, but. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I tend to think of these things as tools. And unfortunately, we've based our laws and policies on not the responsible use of a tool, but on the abuse of a tool. You know, if, if the only thing you had ever seen a hammer used for was to bludgeon people, you would rightly decide that hammers should be off limits. And so when we you know, when we see these dangerous interactions people have with psychedelics, and that's the only thing you've heard, it's not surprising that you would expect that these things be off limits. I'm not trying with this project to usher in some kind of psychedelic renaissance. I just, I want to take a more holistic look at these substances and parse out whether they can be used to help people if so, how can we avoid any negative impacts that they may bring to someone's life, just like we do with any other approach? Yeah. If people were drinking, you know, concentrated caffeine to the point where we had massive heart attacks all across the country, I mean, I think that, that we would view caffeine as dangerous, but when people, you know, use it as their morning beverage to get the day going and, you know, in, in the context of a healthy, healthy lifestyle, it's hard to see any danger or negative impact from that. Yep. It's all changing our perception of different things and allowing your, your perception to be changed. And you'll discover that, uh, you know, as you unlearn certain things and learn new things that you, you broaden your horizons and you get that more, um, you know, you can just get that ability to see things more fully, right. Which is what we're called to do, to see things more fully instead of just in part, you know, so well, as you continue to work in this space, uh, what's in the future for Seth Connor? What's he, what's he doing in this space? Is there anything or any, any resources that you, uh, could direct people towards or have to offer? Or? Yeah. So, um, I guess a couple of things is one, I, you know, like I mentioned, I'm, um, working in the psychedelic integration coaching space. So I don't know how much I, mentioned that in the beginning, but essentially what, when people come to work with me is typically, you know, um, high performing leadership, uh, who is wanting a competitive advantage, you know, or they're, they've got, uh, they can't hit it. They can't discover a certain solution, um, in their, in their career, you know, or in their, in their job, like Silicon Valley types, you know, or executives in, in business. And they, want to work with plant medicine because they believe that they'll be able to find that competitive advantage or that solution that they can kind of get unstuck from in their business. Um, I also work with veterans who have that PTSD. They have the relationship issues at home. They're constantly in fear or depression, anxiety, addiction, even is a big one brings them to me. And so they want to work with plant medicine as well. 
So what I do is I coach them for six weeks to prepare them for an experience. It doesn't have to be a ceremony. It could just be their own personal ceremony at home, but usually a, a large dose of psychedelic. And we coach in the dietary, in the ways of dietary plan, you know, what to eat, what not to eat, because, um, the science shows you that there's certain things you should not eat at least a week or two before, right. Before ceremony. And so we prepare in that way. We prepare with their intentions. What are they bringing to that experience? What, what questions do they want answered? Uh, what is their mindset? Cause in any psychedelic conversation, we should be talking about set and setting, right? It's so what's your mindset going into that? Is it negative? Is it fearful? Is it, um, you know, are you, res uh, resisting, you know, those things that could lead to what we call a bad trip or a bad experience. So all that preparation going into that experience, and then six weeks after their experience is working on the integration of everything that they learned from that, or that they received from that experience. So just imagine if you, you're getting 10 to 20 years of therapy in a, you know, six to nine hour experience. And that's a lot. So how do I take that and integrate it into my world or implement it into my world, my business, my relationship, my life going forward? And so we, we coach on that um, and, and continue, you know, maybe they want to do another one after that. So that's, that's what I'm doing on the coaching side of things. I'm also working as kind of a consultant for a company out in Denver, um, which I shared with you is the, uh, the mushroom doctor who is a team of veterans who are on a mission to save other veterans or other people that deal with PTSD. They are, um, they've put together a psilocybin mushroom microdosing product that, um, is that can be taken on a daily basis or, you know, every few days or a few days a week. Um, and just kind of like helping them, helping their, their team of veterans get that, um, that product into other veterans hands or other people that deal with PTSD. And so, um, they're just, they're an amazing group of people. They realize that the VA system has kind of failed most veterans uh, on the mental health side of things, at least. And they're doing something about it on the plant medicine side of things. So that's kind of what I'm, I'm up to and what my, my recent, my, you know, foreseeable future looks like right now. Great. If someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best, uh, method of reaching you? <clears throat> yep. So, um, you can reach me at Seth at sethconnor.com. So just seth at sethconnor.com and uh, make sure that you spell my name with an ER because a lot of times people spell it with an OR and they, they don't get to me. So C-O-N-N-E-R, but yeah, seth at sethconnor.com. Feel free to use that email to get a hold of me uh, or you can go to sethconnor.com and that's, that's the website. So Fantastic. Seth, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate your vulnerability. I appreciate your your honesty and your willingness to help others. I look forward to speaking again in the future. Me too. And uh, I, I applaud uh, your efforts in this space. And I hope that you just continue to grow spiritually. I hope your health continues to improve. And I hope that you continue to be a light in the lives of others. Thank you so much for having me, Clint. This was such a fun, fun conversation. And I look forward to hearing what, uh, what others have to say and, and their journeys as well, as well as yours. So thank you. My new friend, Seth Connor. Thanks to him again. And I thank you all for joining us. Goodbye, Seth. Goodbye. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed episode four of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. 
Thanks again to Seth Connor for joining me. And if you think Seth can help you achieve your goals in life, faith, and business, reach out to him at seth at sethconnor.com. And that's Connor spelled with an E-R. Please join us in our next episode as we continue the discussion of faith and psychedelics. And until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Mm-hmm.